0: So for those of you who like to have handouts that you can write on, I want to apologize. I, I can't get it together to get you guys a handout. So I'm going to tell you what my focus is. It's pretty simple. Um, when I looked at this passage, there are just a couple of things. It's like everything that God says is important. But there are a couple of things that float to the top. And that is um, Christ being made perfect through suffering. So that's point one. This is most of what I'm talking about. And then Christ being a merciful and faithful high priest. So um, I know that Lori prayed for me, but I want to pray again really, really quick. Um, our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for this study. Uh, Lord, we pray that your will would be done here. Uh, and we ask, Lord, that you would lead us away from temptation and deliver us from the evil one. And we can say with confidence that we know you're going to do it, Lord, because of the work of Jesus. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, um, I'm going to start with a sad story, so it's just a warning. Uh, uh, Kara Bolt told me she'd sit and like shed a tear where appropriate in the back, and just (laughs) Um, that's not my intent. But there's a connection. This is a family story. There's a connection to what we studied today. In um, 2006, my cousin Brad went to prison for the rest of his natural life. The last time I saw him was in 2003 at a family reunion. We'd gotten together because my dad's sister had Alzheimer's and. Everybody wanted to see her before she got really bad. Um, I hadn't seen Brad for years before that um, because he had been in prison for about 10 years for crimes, a cascade of crimes, and he deserved to be there. But when he got out, I think he got out in 2003. He came to this family reunion, and I heard him say to somebody else, my parents gave me a second chance. Because they had always gone to prison to visit him. He was their only son. And when he got out, he lived with them. He started going to church. He met a woman there and ultimately proposed to her. And she accepted his offer of marriage. And so they were married. And unfortunately, somewhere along the line, he started using drugs. And the people that he ran with were a really rough bunch of people. And one of those friends that he had through that group, her daughter was murdered. And so Brad took it on himself to murder the murderer. And he was caught. And he was sentenced to prison. He was a repeat offender. It wasn't like this was the first crime he'd committed. And this was premeditated murder. And so he went to prison for the rest of his life. Um... In 2010, I'm standing in a hospital hallway in Mesa, Arizona, while my aunt, his mother, is speaking to him for the last time. She was dying of cancer. And the prison chaplain had arranged for Brad to call her and say goodbye. And it was one of the saddest moments in my whole life. And there, you know, there are many sad things that happen in all of our lives, but this one stands out because just the picture of brokenness, like he should have been there by his mom's bedside. But because of choices that he had made, because he had yielded to temptation, he was locked away. And my aunt kept on saying, I was standing in the hall just weeping, and she kept on saying over and over, I love you, I love you, God bless you, God bless you. That's all she said. And because he yielded to temptation, that cost him that moment. It cost her. And I don't repeat the story with any sense of condemnation to Brad. Um, It still sorrows me knowing that he's gone. Um, It's a dreadful tale of brokenness. But I'm telling it because it's a glimpse of the world that Christ entered into. And it's why he came. So that's why I tell the story. Because I want to drill down today and talk about Jesus being made perfect through suffering. Before I do, I want to, I want us to pause and just try to clear our minds and like put away, this is so hard when you're listening to somebody else talk, put away the list of things that we need to get accomplished today and just try to be here in the moment because I want you to pretend you have supernatural powers. Um, I'm serious because as I kept on thinking about this passage, I thought we need to rise above and, and think about history and see it as this arc. There's the fall and what God did with his people, Israel, and the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the letter to the Hebrews. And here we are studying that letter. And this is all in this arc of time that probably seems like a breath to God. So I want us to think about that, like to sit above time and look, because it's really important to remember that this is all of this is part of God's plan. When I was preparing, I was listening to a talk by Sinclair Ferguson, and he said something that stood out to me. He said all of the Bible unfolds from Genesis 3:15, which says, "God is speaking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." I'm sorry, he's talking to Adam and Eve, but he's talking about Satan. So when we look back at the garden where this is where sin and suffering entered the world and then we consider the incarnation and the death and resurrection of Jesus we can see that God in time past and time present he revealed himself to his people through his son and this is one of the things that Hebrews is showing us that Jesus is the revelation of God so last week the scripture we studied stated plainly that nothing is left out of the control of God. But the apostle states, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. And this bit, of pre, this bit of Hebrews includes one of the most beautiful claims in all of scripture as a response to that fact that we don't see everything in subjection to God. The apostle says, and here I'm, we're connecting from, to last week, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 9 is an important bridge to the exposition that we studied this week in 10 through 18, because it proclaims that Jesus is the son of God who suffered and died for our sins. And we can connect the glory This week's text to the the wonder of our brotherhood in Jesus. You have to look at the rhetorical situation here. In chapter 2, it begins by the apostle warning people not to drift away from Jesus. Not to drift away from a great salvation. And when you think about the audience that this was written to, he's warning religious people not to drift away. It's not like he was writing to the pagans saying, you need to be careful not to neglect God. He's writing to church people, warning them not to drift away. And then he holds up Jesus. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. So after verse nine, the apostle turns to God, the father's incarnational and sacrificial plan for Jesus. this is where we take up this week, declaring that it was fitting that God for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. We know that Jesus was sinless and that he did not need any sort of purifying fires to deal with sin. But it was the father's eternal purpose in bringing many sons and daughters to glory that his son should be made perfect through suffering. When we think about what this means, we have to think about the whole of Christ's calling. It was to reveal the Father's love and to be a ransom for sin. So this calling of being made bringing many sons to glory, being made perfect through suffering is a, is a charge given to him by God. And it led him out of his glory in heaven and it situated him in a specific time and place. And I want to focus for a moment on what Spurgeon says about what it meant for Jesus to be made perfect through suffering. And some of this is going to be verbatim Spurgeon, some is going to be Saunders' paraphrase. So when we talk about Jesus being made perfect through suffering, by his sufferings he became perfect as a savior from having offered a complete sacrifice, a complete atoning sacrifice for sin. Sin, Spurgeon says, could not have been put away by holiness. The best performance of an unsuffering being could not have removed the guilt of man. Suffering was absolutely necessary, for suffering was the penalty of sin. So that's one. Two, it was necessary that Christ should suffer to make him a perfect Savior so far as sympathy goes. If Christ had not suffered, he would not have been a faithful high priest, made like his brothers. We would not be able to say he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin, if he had not suffered. Three, he could have provided, he could not have provided a, an example of patient endurance if he had never suffered. And that's so much of what Hebrews is about is patient endurance. He could have never taught us to forgive. If he had never felt injuries, he could not have trained us to holy courage. If he had never fought a battle, he could have never shown us the way to make tribulation work to experience and experience hope. If through tribulation, he had not himself waited to his throne. So it was the father's will. We know that Jesus Christ would bear many sorrows and tribulations and that he would be tempted as we are. When Jesus laid the foundation stone of salvation at Calvary, it's important for us to recognize that he was both a sacrificial lamb, he was an incarnated man, and a supernatural warrior. He was fully man and fully God, and he was involved in a supernatural conflict, which we don't, we talk about sin a lot in relation to the cross, which is important, but it's also, the cross was a supernatural conflict. While Calvary is the center point, and it's essential to our salvation, it was not the starting point for Christ's suffering. He had been here for a while. He had had to deal with sinful humans. It, so Calvary is the end point, and it's where the war was won, and he came through all of that suffering, the ultimate suffering, in full perfection. And This is why he's an example for us, because he came through suffering and brought many sons and daughters to glory. Consider that Jesus had met with Satan before that conflict at the cross. He had met with Satan in the Judean wilderness at the beginning of his ministry after he was baptized. And he spent... uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give an account of Jesus spending 40 days and 40 nights alone in the wilderness fasting and praying. And it's at the end of that time where he's, as a man, extended himself that we are told that he was hungry. So Satan takes that open door and comes to Jesus, and he says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. And he tempts him with two other things. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. When I talk about what the Scottish minister, George MacDonald, says about what was going on in that temptation situation, that you know, Jesus, is, Satan knew who exactly who he was dealing with. There was the son of God. He knew that Jesus was perfect. And so he's not trying to tempt him with evil. He's trying to tempt him with an inferior form of good. He's a person who's got to eat bread. So Jesus rejects that temptation to fulfill his need for food. He's going to wait for God to take care of that need. Then Satan tempts Jesus to cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. And he's trying to get Jesus to assert the power that the father has given him. Like, like you're God, do this. Say, and Jesus says, no. And then he tempts them with the gift of worldly rule. And Jesus says, no. But that last temptation is, it's hilarious. when you think about it, like I'll do all of this for you if you bow down and worship me. That's a lie. And Jesus knew it, and he passed through it. So, you know, you might look at that and think, well, that was easy for him. But remember, he was still a man. It, was still, it wouldn't be called temptation if it wasn't a temptation. So he came against that with the word of God. And he understood that he had to stay hold fast to the mission that God had given him. And he obeyed Perfectly. Macdonald says that nothing but the obedience of the Son, the obedience unto death, the absolute doing of God the will of God, because it was the truth, could redeem the prisoner, the widow, and the orphan. So it's important to understand that Christ in the desert was the Son of God, but he was also a man, and he passed through these temptations by speaking scripture to him, to Satan. The Lucan account Um, of the temptation says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, Jesus, until an opportune time. That opportune time was Jesus' death. In the upper room discourse of John 14, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus... As the Apostle of Hebrews has stated, took on flesh and blood for the very purpose of becoming the sanctifier for fallen mankind, the perfect offering for human sin. This was God's plan, that Jesus would show us the Father by becoming our brother, and he would save us by becoming what we are, flesh and blood, subject to the same trials and tribulations of the fallen world, but without sin. And we know that to save us, Jesus had to die. And this is not new news to us, but I want us to reflect on what that means. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He had to live here. He had to experience trials and temptations. And then he had to die here in torment after being tortured. McDonald says that, we should approach the sufferings of Jesus with the holiest of fear. And MacDonald thinks that we can see some of the devil's work trying to do his worst to Christ when Christ cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What appears to be despair, though, MacDonald argues, is actually faith. Pure and simple And surrounded by fire, the soul of Christ declares for God. The sacrifice ascends in the cry, My God, the divine horror of that moment is unfathomable by the human soul. It was blackness of darkness, and yet he would believe. Yet he would hold fast. God was his God yet. Without this last trial of all, the temptations of our master had not been so full. ...as the human cup could hold. So just as, like Spurgeon, McDonald notes that there would have been... ...if Christ had not become a human and died on the cross for us... ...and just swooped in and saved us out of his own perfection as God... um, ...there would have been one region where we as humans would have had to have passed... ...where we would have called out for our captain brother... ...and there would have been no voice or hearing. So by shedding his blood... Jesus drinks the dread cup. He faces the worst of all human suffering. And he's not only contending with death. His hours on the cross... He's not only contending with sin and death. His hours on the cross are this immense conflict in the supernatural world. We know this because the apostle of Hebrews says, Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus was victorious over the darkness at Calvary, and he canceled the claims of Satan on us. Death for us will not mean condemnation and judgment. Even though our physical bodies have to die, we have grace and peace knowing that we have a home with our Father because of the work of Jesus, because he destroyed the works of the devil. J.C. Philpott says, It's a point little considered that though though one of much importance that the Lord Jesus had, as if personally, to grapple with and overcome the prince of the power of the air, to hurl Satan from his usurped throne, to destroy his works and overthrow his kingdom. And this is not an act of omnipotent power, but it is in the act of lowest weakness. For he was crucified through weakness. Here the commentator, when he's saying he's crucified through weakness. The commentator's um, speaking to Second Corinthians 13.4. So it's important for us to look back at the cross because this is where we see the work of the merciful and faithful high priest. Faithful in the service to God. And we're not fixating on the cross uh, in a sort of, let's just think about the gruesomeness of it solely. That's not the only reason to focus on the cross. And the only reason to focus on the cross is not, oh, my sin is what put Jesus there. But it's a recognition that that is the way that opened the door so we could become children of the resurrection, brothers and sisters with Christ. So Jesus is a loving, merciful, faithful high priest, and by going to the cross, he opened the door. He said, I am the way. That is the way. He is the sacrifice. He is the priest. He is the altar. And this is where we go free. So Hebrews also talks about he goes, Jesus went through these things. So when you go through these things, you will know that you have someone to help you. In our own trials, in our own betrayals, in our own temptations to sin, we can never say that God does not understand what we experience here or that being human was easier for Jesus If anything, it was harder because he was perfect. It had to have been hard for him to see people reject God and people engage in sin. But because Jesus came to help the offspring of Abraham flesh and blood, the scripture tells us that he had to be made like us in every respect. So what is hard for us here, He he understands it. It was hard for him too. This means um, nothing is left out of his experience of suffering. He had to bear it all to become that merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God for the propitiation of the sins of the people. And as the scripture says, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And the lovely part of the scripture text from this week that I didn't focus on is that we are part of God's family, that we are sons and daughters of God, being brought to glory and to completion in Christ in a familiar a familial relationship as beloved children. The real, reality of life here is that we are going to be tempted. We are going to have trials. And even though Jesus defeated Satan on the cross, we're still going to have to live in a fallen world. And this is why the apostle says, He is able, the present tense, is able to help those who are being tempted. Part of the reason I mentioned the story about my cousin Brad is that it reminded me, like this scripture reminded me, I'm just like him. Given the opportunity, there are times where I would gladly commit murder, and I'm not saying that in jest. I mean, just recently, I shared with some of the women on the discipleship committee I became aware of a grievous harm that had been done to one of my friends and the person who harmed her and her family went free and when I realized what had happened I was so angry and I wanted to kill the person I'm not kidding you I wanted to like I don't own a gun, but I thought about like, how could I get one? How could I kill this person? Those things went through my mind. And I'm a believer. I'm a religious person. So I had to share that with people and have them pray for me and actually pray that God would bless the person who had done wrong and let God deal with it. But I, like my brother, my cousin, Brad, Wanted to handle justice himself, I wanted to do it too. Without thinking about what the ramifications would be for me, I'd spend my life in prison. Most of my temptations do not look like this. I don't fantasize (laughs) about killing people. Just a few times in my life. Um, I'm serious. (laughs) Most of my temptations look like covetousness, lust, pride, ingratitude to God. That's what most of my stuff looks like. And this is where I could set off to drifting by focusing on myself instead of God. I can start to think, you know, when I can become envious. I had to get off of Facebook several years ago because that stirred the pot. I just had to get off, which, you know, I miss out. I feel like I miss out on seeing some things, but it did not help my weak flesh to be checking Facebook every day. And I don't have this sense of moderation. I want to see the pictures. So I just had to get off about four years ago and I'm happier. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just too weak. And so in covetousness, for example, I can start to think that I'm off of God's radar and that my afflictions are unknown to him. And that there is no purpose for my suffering. I can start to think that way. And this is the problem of many people in the church. Religious people like the Hebrews. We look at ourselves instead of Christ. We neglect our great salvation by getting tied up in the things of this world. We do not confess our sins and make amends and move on. We let guilt and shame become the nexus of our identity Rather than nurturing a sense of having been saved by grace. And you nurture that sense through the study of the word. Like, Bible study has supernatural power in your life. Whether you recognize it or not. The Bible is the only book that comes with an invisible person. It has power. So, we nurture that sense through Bible study, through prayer, through meditation, through fellowship as brothers and sisters. You nurture that sense of having been rescued by God's grace. That becomes your focus rather than, I'm such a sinner. And by, you know, if you look at your filth instead of the purity of Christ, you're missing out on when Christ won for you. You will always lose when you stay in that I'm such a sinner game. I'm not trying to suggest that we should not feel contrition for sin. The Lord does not despise a contrite heart. But, I'm also not suggesting that grace gives you a free pass to make bad choices. However, in our trials and our temptations and our sorrows, which will come, you will have consolations and blessings. Jesus knows that it's hard here. He knows our hearts, and he's able to sympathize with us. None of us have resisted sin to the point of shedding our blood. Jesus did. He was perfect through suffering. When he he suffered and died, he was brought into his exaltation. And it bought you a freedom of soul that assures you that you're safe in the Father's love. And if you don't sense this freedom because of the sufferings and exaltation of Jesus, if you don't sense this in your heart... I encourage you to pray for a revelation of God's grace as you study Hebrews this year. And it will come. I, if you pray and ask God, it will come. Think about ages ago. We're going to step back up and, into our supernatural time vortex here. Ages ago, you know, Moses asked God to show him his glory. The Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And now, in these last days, God has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, that we have a merciful and faithful high priest who is not ashamed to call us his sisters. He was made perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. I want you to remember these words. Because when you're in the midst of a trial... They can be a shield that you can hold over your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are being taken from glory to glory. We thank you that one day we will see your face. Father, we thank you that we do have a merciful and faithful high priest in Jesus Christ who understands what it's like for us to be here. Lord, may we believe that we are being changed into the likeness of your son for his sake. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.